be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. One of the reasons that prompted Matthew to pick up his pen and and write his gospel was that as he looked out over his church, as he looked over the struggles that were going on as they were weaving together Judaism and Christianity and all the challenges of persecution and and other things, uh, he obviously felt the need to give the church a manual of discipleship. And that's one of the main purposes for the Gospel of Matthew. The, the Greeks had an idea of a disciple. They called the word a mathetes. It meant a learner. And the Jews had uh, a similar idea. A mathetes was someone who would uh, follow a particular rabbi or even movement. And when Jesus begins his public ministry, one of the first things he does is call Uh, disciples to himself. He is often making an invitation uh, for people to become his mathetes, his learner, his follower. And a lot of the Gospel of Matthew is designed particularly to sketch out what being a disciple looks like. Uh, There are uh, stories about disciples. There's teaching particularly addressed to the disciple. In the last words of the Gospel The disciples are to go and make disciples. So it's a gospel about discipleship. Now, one of the ways that Matthew teaches us what a disciple is, is by giving us illustrations of what they look like. And in tonight's uh, passage, uh, we have an example of a model disciple. And his name is Joseph. Now, like the great teacher he is, Matthew's always doing several things. Uh, He's explaining in this passage how Jesus is legally a descendant of David. He is introducing us to the truth that Jesus is divine, that that God put his seed into Mary and that he's not from human parentage. But the other thing that that Matthew's doing tonight is he's trying to show what a disciple really looks like. And he begins with those familiar words that we just read. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, a Jewish betrothal was very different than uh, our engagements. It was a a formal prenuptial contract 
that took place before witnesses. Usually the woman was between 12 and 13, really a girl. Uh, The parents usually arranged the betrothal. The young woman would remain in her father's home for about a year, and then they would have a second ceremony that would mark the marriage. At that time, they would consummate the marriage. Now, Matthew's Gospel says that during this betrothal period, before the couple had had sexual relations, Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And and this is a little simple uh, Greek phrase that Matthew will repeat again and again, and he repeats it twice in this little passage, from the Holy Spirit, or ek, uh, that's the Greek, uh, from or by the Holy Spirit. Now that's important. Because the Holy Spirit is the dominant actor in this story. The Holy Spirit is the one that interrupts Matthew's life forever. Now, it might help to understand what this involved for Joseph. And by the way, Luke shows us what a disciple looks like uh, in Mary. Matthew focuses on Joseph. But it, it might help to understand a little bit about the world that Joseph was living in. And, and since most of us have been to a Christmas pageant and we've seen a little guy in his dad's bathrobe kind of teeter around, we probably don't have any sense for the kind of man Joseph was. The reality was that the economy was exploding in Joseph's part of the world. And, and here's why. Herod was dumping millions of dollars into the nearby city of Sepphoris. And Sepphoris uh, had rebelled against Rome about 40 years before Jesus and been decimated by the Roman troops. Nothing but ashes was left. And when Herod decided to rebuild Sepphoris, he decided to make it the ornament of all of Galilee, the most beautiful city in all of Galilee. And you, you might remember that in In Israel, Galilee is in the north, it's more rural, it's where Jesus grew up, and uh, Jerusalem is in the south. So Herod decided to do an enormous building project. He he built a 3,000-seat theater, uh, a palace, an upper and lower city, uh, a market, and a library. And this building project took place uh, throughout Joseph's lifetime. And so one of the things that would have uh, been true would be that craftsmen from all over Galilee would have been hired during this period to work on this project. And I've been to Nazareth. It's up on a ridge overlooking the Valley of Jezreel. And it looks over where the city of Zephyrus was. It was about three miles away. There was an enormous Roman road that ran all the way through the region. And so this was a time of great prosperity in that part of the country. Now, that means that Jesus, or rather Joseph, was a small businessman uh, in a time of great economic prosperity. And and so it's reasonable to assume uh, that he had dreams and and plans for his life. Uh, He was looking around him. He, He saw these buildings going up. He saw all the supplies going by. He probably had a number of contracts uh, from Sepphoris, it was a great time to be in business. And, and perhaps Joseph uh, thought about building his business. Uh, it would have been normal for a devout Jew to think, 
you know, I'm going to be very faithful in my synagogue, and one day I'll be one of the elders in my synagogue and in my, my little village of Nazareth. Uh, he, he very well may have said, you know, Mary and I, and, and Joseph was probably older according to the customs of the day, 30s or even 40s. He, he might have thought, you know, we're going to have a child, and uh, maybe he'll take over my business one day because there was no retirement then, and that was how you, you took care of yourself. So, so Joseph likely had uh, dreams and plans. And then the Holy Spirit interrupts them. The Holy Spirit sweeps aside everything that Joseph could have been thinking about. It was as if uh, he took the story that Joseph was writing for his own life, uh, crumpled it up, threw it away, said, I'm going to write a new one now. It was a dramatic interruption. And and one of the marks then of a true disciple is an openness to being interrupted by the Holy Spirit. That's what a disciple is. You, You hold your story loosely. Uh, there's this phrase in writing uh, called killing your darlings. I think there was even a movie about it recently. And uh, it, it doesn't mean shooting your kids. It means that, I guess it could, but it, I, what, it, what it means in writing is you've got to be willing to let go of your favorite line. And that's a big block for, for writers because you have this thing and it just sounds so good and it hums and you just can see it on the page. A lot of times that's the very one that you've got to let go. And so maybe one of the things that we could learn from this is that we all have to be willing as disciples to kill our darlings. You know how you were sure this year was going to go? Did it go that way? Are you willing to have the Holy Spirit Interrupt your life. That's a mark of a disciple. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And of course, Joseph assumes that Mary has committed adultery. Uh, There was an ugly way to deal with this and a not-so-ugly way to deal with this. Joseph is a compassionate man. He deals with it in the not-so-ugly way. And and one of the real important points here is Joseph is doing the right thing by the laws of the time. He's actually going beyond the laws and doing a just and compassionate thing. This is, is by all accounts, the right thing to do, divorce her quietly. But then he starts pondering. Matthew says, and as he considered these things, as he pondered these things, as he reflected on these things, and I never, I've read this many times before, and I never saw this before. Uh, commentary pointed out to me that the Greek word used for pondering here is in a particular grammatical construction that means intensive reflection over a long period of time. And so it's as if Joseph senses something is up. And as a devout Jew, he begins to, to ponder, um, to 
pray, to meditate, to, to listen, uh, to, to ruminate, to search the ways of God. He slows down and he listens. He doesn't just react. And then he hears the angel speak. He is worn down from the pondering. He falls asleep and the Lord sends an angel. And the angel says that this is true. This child's from the Lord. His name is going to be Jesus. He'll save the people from their, their sins. And it's just a beautiful picture of what happens when we don't just react. When we don't just do what the right thing is to do, when we don't just do what our instinct says we should do, when we don't do what everybody thought we should do, when we don't do what we were trained to do, but we ponder. And the angel speaks. Erasmo Levi Merikakas, in a beautiful meditation, he's a Cuban theologian, on this passage, he writes... Human meditation, protracted, labored, anguished, and divine illumination, sudden, intense, incontestable, go well with one another. They call out to one another. Joseph's dark puzzlement in piety before God unwittingly invites illumination to come to his soul. Sadness and confusion presented to God invite his coming. You know, Joseph is so different from Saul. Remember how we studied Saul last winter? Now Saul was always just reacting. He was he he he'd get a message he didn't like and he'd react. He'd become anxious and he'd react. And he'd create all this chaos because he was always reacting and he had the power to react. What Joseph does is exactly the opposite. He ponders. He didn't just fire off a text. He didn't just get on email. He didn't just talk to his roommate. He ponders. And he becomes open to the narrative of the Savior of the world. Now, now part of being open to this I mean, if we really go this way, if this is really the kind of life that you want, if this is what a disciple really is, you know, I think that's one of the things we're going to learn in Matthew. Christianity is not being the CEO of your own company and hiring a consultant, Jesus, to come in and coach you. He's not an executive coach. Christianity is getting fired and hired back to work for the new CEO. And if you really start to make that shift from, all right, all right, I need a little help here. Things are going a little rough. I'm going to go get a little Jesus on my side, get me through finals or whatever it is. If you really make that shift from that to, oh, my goodness, Jesus is the head of my life. Then it means you start to hold the story of your life really, really loosely. And that means you hold the evaluation of a successful life very loosely. And I think these are deep truths here, and I don't know if I'm equipped to talk about them. And it may be just my age. But one of the radical reorientations that happens when you become a disciple of Christ 
is you define a good life in a different way than you did before. You define a good life in a different way than you did before. Are you up for that? That's what a disciple does. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, called his name Jesus. A lot of powerful action verbs here. He woke, he died, he did, he took, he knew her not, he called. Joseph hears the word of God for him and obeys. Now, somebody pointed out this week, we only see Jesus three times in the Gospels. And he never says a word. We never have a word written of Joseph. What he's known for is his obedience. When the the Lord spoke, he obeyed. Now again, when all we know is a Christmas pageant, that's a a nice little idea and and cute and cuddly, and he goes to Egypt, and we we all get all that, and... But let's think a minute um, about what saying yes to this dream was. Archaeologists did a dig in Nazareth. And Nazareth is still a, a city today. It's larger today. But archaeologists did a dig there in the 20th century. And what they concluded was that the Nazareth of Jesus' day was about the size of downtown Knoxville and had less than 500 people in it. That meant everyone knew that Mary and Joseph had had an illegitimate child. Until they became believers, they they would have not understood. And so in this very traditional culture, Mary and Joseph and their child had a bastard. The Old Testament even says in Deuteronomy 23.2, Bastards are not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. The Hebrew word is mamzer. It means corrupted or mongrel. And we have some evidence uh, that supports the idea that Jesus' peers saw him as a bastard mongrel. Because in John 8, um, 41, Jewish leaders said to Jesus, We're not born of sexual immorality. And it seems like the implication is that they thought he was. And we have writings from the first, or more from the second century that talk about Jesus being a momser, Jesus being a bastard. And we obviously don't know how Jesus grew up, but it never occurred to me till today that it was possible that Jesus might not have been allowed in the synagogue to worship because he was a bastard in the, the law forbid it. I don't know how that worked out. He obviously learned Torah and all those things, but I think it's, it's easy to forget when Joseph said, I will marry this woman and care for her child, it probably meant that on their wedding day, she was either great with child or they'd already had the baby. Can you imagine in a traditional culture what that must have been like? Uh, Essentially, Joseph, by saying, all right, I'll do this, 
was committing career suicide. You know, the contracts would have just dried up. Social suicide. You could never be a leader in the synagogue with this kind of a social stigma. And yet he went ahead. And that's why, that's why I think they call this the narrow way. You know, again, the CEO and the consultant thing, you know, my life's pretty good. I've got some struggles. Could need a little bump here. Jesus, thanks. That's not this. <laughs> that's, that's not this. And we all follow God in different ways at, at All Souls. And in, in some ways, I, if you said, what's the vision for All Souls? I think this is it, that we would be people open to the interruption of the Holy Spirit, creating space to hear the angels speak, and then when we do hear, saying yes. And I think about of one lady that does this in a way that most of us wouldn't want to. Um, uh, Jane Bullington, years ago, was called to care for the unborn. And, and she was called to do it in a pretty dramatic way, a pretty prophetic way, kind of a Jeremiah-like way. And she goes to campuses all over uh, America and shares pictures of what unborn children look like and gets into some incredibly intense, hostile conversations and gently tries to share a vision for the protection of the unborn. And we, I was talking with her about that earlier and how she keeps going and things like this. It's a very difficult, challenging call. It's not a call for everybody. And she just said, it's what the Lord told me to do. what the Lord told me to do. So I wonder, if, I wonder if there's something here tonight that the Lord's calling you to do. And no, you didn't have an angel tell you. I know, I get all that. But you, you know what it is. You know what it is. It struck me as I studied this this week that Joseph may have just heard clearly from the Lord three times his whole life. We don't know, but that's all the Bible records. He may have just acted on those three words the rest of his life. And sometimes I think I'm off the hook because I didn't hear anything fresh this morning. You may have heard a word five years ago, ten years ago, 20 years ago, that is still the guiding word of your life and not followed it because of fear. This is the paradox. This is why it's so hard. This is where it's so confusing and scaring and costly and so wonderful at the, whole, at the same time. This is what the Lord means when he talks about you have to lose your life to gain it. 
is that we, we, we say no to the word of the Lord. We say no to going the narrow way. We say no to the path that leads us to shame because we don't want to break off that relationship. We don't want to give that kind of money. We don't want to make that kind of change. We don't want to relate that kind of way. We don't want to stop looking at that particular thing. And we think in that we'll be safe and we'll find life and we'll be happy. And what we don't realize is every day that goes by when we say no to the narrow way, our soul shrivels up further and further and further. And we wonder, why don't I feel life? Why don't I feel joy? Why isn't there a sense of meaning and purpose in my life? Why, why do I feel dead and numb inside? And we blame it on all sorts of things when it could be that the reason you feel numb inside is you said no. And you're not going to get much new until you say yes. I was, I was talking to somebody a little while ago about something I was leading and it kept shrinking in size at one point. That's happened a lot in my career over the years. And she said, um, maybe, that's, maybe that's gospel success. Maybe if you really preach the gospel, Doug, maybe things would shrink instead of grow. Maybe if you really describe the narrow way, maybe if you really called Joseph, called people to a Joseph life, maybe there'd just be a remnant left at the end. Maybe she's right. You want to be one of them? Let's pray.